RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. But yes, of course, you know, these scenarios do happen. People being held against their will, loved ones being held against their will, and often in very distressing circumstances and with acutely worried family members or or employers. So that dynamic exists and is the reason why the insurance exists. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC and in each episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week our guest is Charlie Hanbury and our topic is kidnap and ransom insurance. Charlie started out as a broker with Aon specialising in Latin American risks but moved across to Hiscox in 2007 where he ended up as head of crisis management rest of the world. Then. In July 2021, he became Chief Executive Officer of a new MGA, Samfire Risk, which aims, and I quote, to create world-class products that ensure against extortive crime, hostage-taking and kidnap, terrorism in all its guises, travel into and within insecure countries and locations, which is what we're going to discuss today. So, Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. It's very nice to be here. And I've heard in the previous podcast, you say that you fell into insurance. So how did that happen? Well, I was born in Venezuela. And so I had a a Spanish speaking capability and I'd studied Spanish as well. So I wanted to use a language within my career. I wasn't quite sure what that career was going to be or look like, but I ended up with the opportunity to interview for a job where they said Spanish speaking was required, but they couldn't say what form of insurance it was because it was confidential. I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And it ended up being a, um, a role to be a broker within the kidnap and ransom team for Latin American private clients at, at Aon. So today we're going to talk about kidnap and ransom insurance, which <laughs> I have to say gives me an opportunity to deliver one of the great film speeches. Uh, so clearly up there with Laurence Olivier's Henry V. So here goes. <clears throat> I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you and I will kill you. That was Liam Neeson in Taken playing Brian Mills, whose daughter has been kidnapped by sex traffickers. And Charlie, how representative would you say is that of kidnap as it exists in the 21st century? Well, I think it was extremely representative of Liam Neeson there. So congratulations. That was a great impression. <laughs> um, it, it was as if he was here. In it, the room. it was. We were in the room. Um, listen, I, th- I think, um, of, of course, there are scenarios like that. But I would say the reality is probably a little less glamorous, if that's the right word, a little bit more transactional. It typically tends to be means in countries where it's prevalent as a means of raising funds normally to support other kind of nefarious industries, for for instance, the drug industry. Typically, the kind of negotiation that, that, uh, that you would encounter probably wouldn't be in line with how Liam Neeson's talking to, uh, to kidnappers, (laughs) Uh, again, probably a little more transactional, um, a little more cautious, 
But yes, of course, you know, th these scenarios do happen. People being held against their will, loved ones being held against their will, and often in very distressing circumstances and with acutely worried family members or, or employers. So that dynamic exists and it's the reason why the insurance exists. But perhaps the traditional kidnap for ransom scenario is something that's less high up the risk register, certainly for corporations. And some of the other things that the policy does is, is, is are perhaps more relevant nowadays. And and just so that we kind of got this in context, kind of how common is kidnap nowadays around the world? So I think there are locations where it remains an, an ever ongoing issue that people have to deal with. And of course, you know, there are, there are countries always associated with the problem, Colombia perhaps being the most famous. But in the last decade or two, consistently, we've seen problems in Mexico. You know, the, the, the drug cartel activity have a, a very sophisticated, well-embedded ability to carry out this type of crime. You've got other countries too, where the dynamic's similar, uh, uh, you know, big disparities in the social structure between rich and poor. Anywhere really where you find that dynamic, you, you, you find that the, the scourge of kidnapping country of my birth, Venezuela, has kind of had on and off problems and you get flare-up points from time to time, you know, when, when we saw countries such as Libya collapse and, and where you find lack of uh, law enforcement, lack of political co cohesion or security cohesion, you often find the problem of kidnapping and extortive crime. And um, before this podcast, I was kind of looking at the origins of the word uh, kidnap and it's often the case, it's not entirely clear but it appears to go back to the 17th century and uh, possibly referred to the seizing or the napping of children or kids, kid napping. And these kids would then be smuggled to work on plantations in the Caribbean. But kind of during the 19th century, the word kidnap expanded its meaning to start referring to the seizure of anyone, adult or child. And in effect, it became simply another word for abduction. But despite the ancient pedigree of the concept and the word um, of kidnapping, most people, I suspect, would assume that kidnap and ransom insurance is kind of a relatively modern type of insurance, kind of the last 10, 20 years or so far. So, so would they be right in that assumption? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But actually, the earliest example I've come across of the kidnapping, in, in the sense as, as to how we understand it, was Julius Caesar by Sicilian pirates. And when the ransom demand was made back to Rome, apparently he was insulted at its, at its low level. Anyway, apparently he had a, a, a cordial enough relationship with these pirates. But he vowed that once the ransom be paid, he'd come back and slaughter them all, which he did. So that's the earliest example I can find of kidnap for ransom in its purest form. But in terms of insurance coming into play, the, the, a kidnap in the, the early 30s of the... Um, the well-known American individual, Charles Lindbergh, his infant son was kidnapped and, and a very large amount of ransom was demanded. Now, sadly, the case ended in tragedy with the, the infant son being killed. But after that, there was a bit of a spate of wealthy people, particularly in the US, concerned that this might befall them. So we understand that there were kind of inquiries into the Lloyd's market then around the ability to protect it. But really... Kidnap for ransom insurance started to become a thing in the 1970s. And that's where you started to see a more industrialized level of this crime going on in places like Colombia. And aligned with that, you started to see particularly British firms 
of kind of ex-military, ex-special forces, intelligence types, creating businesses who, who put forward as a proposition specifically the ability to help out families who had loved ones being kidnapped. And very quickly, I think it was realized that if you aligned the expertise of these kind of crisis responders with an insurance product, you had the ability to help people, but also protect their financial assets at the same time. So really from the early 70s through to, to modern day is where the market for this insurance policy has existed. And how has kidnap and ransom insurance sort of really developed? What does it look like now? What's the size of the market? Is it, because I can understand, you know, back in the 1970s, it might be a fairly niche product for a few countries, but is it now a common part of business insurance? I think, you know, if you, if you took an analysis of the Fortune 500 or the FTSE 100 here in the UK, I would uh, fathom that a very high percentage, if not approaching all, of those organizations would buy this type of cover because the likelihood is they have some form of international footprint. The likelihood is they have a, a strong risk management culture around duty of care to employees and things like that. But generally, it's still a very, very small niche market. I mean, companies involved don't really publish their involvement in it, and they certainly don't publish how much premium they're transacting. But our estimate would be somewhere between 350 and 400 million US dollars of gross written premium is written for this product annually. But the policies have adapted and evolved to cover many different things now. Most clients that buy it would, as a matter of course, have protection against not only kidnap, but also any form of kind of extortive crime, malicious or illegal detention, including um, being held by uh, nation states or law enforcement, you know, on trumped up charges. So not necessarily a kidnap scenario, but perhaps more a commercial dispute or geopolitical type issue. We cover people just disappearing for no good reason, general threats against people, hostage situations, hijacking, political and security evacuation, assault. You know, the, the, the list of scenarios the policy now covers is extremely broad. They all still fall under that banner of kind of a severe thing happening to your organization or people, not necessarily an everyday occurrence, but it certainly covers much more than just kidnap nowadays. So just to kind of look at one of those, so that, that, that you mentioned there's kind of political security evacuation, that, that's, that's the situation where if, if there's unrest in a country, which suddenly, so a civil war or something suddenly flares up, that's the cost of getting people out of the, the, the country and bringing them back home. Yeah, that's, that's exactly correct. So typically um, a kidnap or ransom policy that has that coverage would cover exactly that scenario. So Let's use the example of, um, well, most recently in, in August 2021, we had Afghanistan, of course, when the Taliban retook the country and um, the, uh, particularly the, the Western nations left in a hurry. And mo most of that was admittedly kind of military-led. But you have seen just this year a number of coups in West Africa um, and therefore both the, paying for the logistics of getting out because sometimes the logistics are not straightforward, you know, perhaps commercial airliners are no longer flying. So you have to find alternative means of getting people out it can be very costly, but it's not just the cost. It's actually having somebody who knows what they're doing in that situation, getting people out of the Southern Libyan oil fields when Gaddafi was toppled was not an easy exercise to operate or operation to undertake. So it's fair to say therefore that sort of kidnap and ransom as a description of the uh, insurance policy is now a bit of a misnomer. It's, it, it goes way beyond the classic kidnap and ransom situation. A hundred percent. And do you know what the way I'd describe it, as I say, it's, it's, a, it's a great product with a lousy name. And, and the name is off-putting to, to a lot of people because it, 
you know, for a corporate, sometimes it can be, well, hang on, this sounds like it's a little bit gray, uh, from a legal perspective, you know, paying a ransom and kidnapping obviously seems like a, a, an acutely, as I, as I mentioned, a kind of acutely out there type of scenario that really doesn't impact that many people. Whereas the reality, yes, as we're kind of talking about is that many of the scenarios not only happen in, in insecure parts of the world, but they can happen at home, you know, extortive crime. We saw an uptick in, in, in the Western world following the financial crisis of 09, 10 of what was called kind of white collar crime to extract money from organizations and people because, you know, it was hard times. So um, policy has relevance across so many different scenarios. And I, and I think across all different types of territory and, and sort of stages of economic development of a, of a country. And that leads me on to my next question, which is who buys it? We've already talked about corporates, but does it go beyond that? And kind of why um, do they buy? And 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 where in the world do they tend to be located? Is is it something which is kind of geographically specific, or do people, as, as I think you were hinting at earlier on, do the big corporations in particular buy it just because it, it, there's of a general duty of care that they owe to their their employees? Yeah, de- definitely. So that you know, the large corporates, sophisticated risk buyers, you know dealing with sophisticated brokers who who would offer them more or less every insurance under the sun will have familiarity, knowledge of this and, and probably be a buyer of this type of cover. From a a kind of private family side of things, you know, Latin America is a well-embedded market. Yeah, I have family down there and I've heard people talk about it as a tax for living somewhere beautiful. If, if you're a certain level of society or wealth in most Latin American countries, you know, your lawyer, your accountant, your insurance broker has a familiarity with this product and it's likely that you would have encountered it. I think where what's interesting is those kind of, those areas of the world which have perhaps not had that dynamic of a kind of embedded kidnapping issue which has brought the product to their attention over the years. So the African continent, Asia, parts of the Middle East, it's just not so well known. But then you're, you know, we're seeing places like China where there's been a, a real interest and uh, take up of this policy coverage as they've started to expand their interests overseas, particularly the One Belt, One Road initiative. And, you know, Chinese nationals being hugely targeted and therefore evacuation, kidnapping, extorted crime. You know, these are all things are starting to encounter. So it's not an exponentially growing product, but it's beginning to grow in those parts of the world where perhaps previously it wasn't considered by either corporates or families. So on a very simple basis, if, if I wanted to buy kidnap and ransom insurance for my family, I could do so, could I? I could come to you and I could just buy a policy for, for my family. You can do. I mean, it's, it's certainly not like, you know, um, going on the internet and buying other, other kind of standard personal alliance types of insurances. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of regulation around selling insurance to consumers, particularly in this country. And most of the carriers that are involved in providing this type of insurance don't sell it on a direct basis. So it, it's not the easiest product to kind of go out and, and, and purchase as an individual consumer. But a little bit of research on the internet, you, you wouldn't go too far before you found an expert that would be able to help you to do that. But typically, again, not without, not without exception, but typically here in the West, it's really very corporate-led in terms of the purchasing. And um, we've now talked about the, the, the kidnap element of kidnap and ransom. But so let's move on to the ransom element, because 
I mean, the payment of ransoms is obviously a hot topic at the moment in the context of cyber insurance because of all the ransomware that's that's happening at the moment. But I mean, obviously, the kidnap and ransom market has been around for a lot longer and has had to deal with kind of the the, the morality and the legality of of ransoms. So, so first of all, let's discuss its legality. Is it legal to pay a ransom? I I'm going to say yes, but there's a few caveats. Now, the first caveat is if you're paying to a terrorist or prescribed or sanctioned entity or organization. So the payment of ransom to, for instance, Islamic State or Al-Qaeda is not legal in any way, shape or form. But, you know, if you look at the the big entities that are involved in the kind of crisis consultancy around KNR, under 1% of kidnappings tend to be by terrorist organizations, as we talked about at the beginning of the call. This is quite transactional. It tends to be criminality that drives it. And so when you come to criminality and the payment of ransom, it's not illegal. So under UK law, the payment of ransom to a non-prescribed or or non-terrorist or non-sanctioned entity is not illegal. I believe that was tested at the high court around Somali piracy in 2009 time. There are a few countries around the world where payment of ransom is specifically illegal. So Italy, for instance, is is an example where at the height of kind of mafia problems, where kidnapping was a big um, modus operandi for them to raise funds, the government outlawed payment of ransom. Argentina and Colombia are two other places. Now, Colombia, again, linked to the problem they had with kidnapping. But the reality is, is that more ransoms have been paid in Colombia than probably any other country on earth over the years. So, no, I, I think that I've given you a long answer to a simple question. Payment of ransom is not illegal so long as it's not being paid to a prescribed organization or anything like that. And there are one or two specific examples of countries that have nuance around it. But from a UK perspective, it's not illegal. Okay, so so it's not illegal, but is it immoral? Is there any evidence that the payment of ransoms actually encourages criminality? I think that's a much, much harder question to ask. Margaret Thatcher, for instance, went after the K&R industry. Well, I think certainly asked her government to look into it in the 80s because she was concerned around the IRA being funded by um, ransom payments, whether of extorted threats or, or kidnapping. Um, I think the answer here is that the KNR industry works very hard to provide um, knowledge, risk mitigating advice, and all that kind of good stuff to its policyholders. You know, it's, it's in the insurer's interest that a, that a um, policyholder is not kidnapped because obviously a kidnap leads to financial loss to the insurer. So just like a household insurer may may encourage you to install a burglar alarm or put locks in your windows, you know, KNR industry has a similar approach to sort of risk mitigation. And then actually, if it does happen, um, I think there's a very strong argument to be said that somebody who's a policyholder who has access to the expertise and resource and help of uh, world-leading consultancy, which most KNR insurers would provide behind their policy to help them to negotiate, ensure that they remain compliant with the law, ensure they remain connected to government if required, where that's required. But critically, that they have an informed negotiation strategy. I I think it wouldn't take you long to see that those cases where there's insurance in play, actually, the the negotiation is, is a tougher one. It's a more reformed one. And therefore, the ultimate ransom paid is a lower one. So I actually think it's 
the insurance market acts as a good handbrake on the escalation of ransoms. And I think it acts as a good handbrake on um, clients putting themselves at harm's way because they're more informed to the risks. And who actually pays the ransom? Is it insurers? No. And that's very clear. It's a policy of reimbursement. So the policyholder must pay whatever is ultimately agreed and then come and seek reimbursement from their policy. And how is the ransom physically paid? Because presumably the criminal gangs behind it are fairly shadowy. So, so is it the classic, you know, you, you leave a, a brown envelope of cash under a bench in a public park or, or how is it actually done? Well, I mean, obviously my, my career, and thank goodness for those policyholders I've insured over the years, I've been sat behind a desk shuffling paper. So I've never witnessed any of this firsthand. But, you know, you, absolutely, you still hear of, and, and uh, it undoubtedly goes on, cash being delivered to an agreed location at an agreed moment for a kind of handover of, of a victim. It, in perhaps um, more developed economies, you're seeing Bitcoin and other cryptos being used because of its, its perceived lack of traceability. But in other parts of the world, sometimes it, it's, it's not necessarily kind of pure hard currency negotiation that's going on. It might be linked to uh, a dispute around land ownership. I mean, we've seen people give up rights to land because that's kind of been effectively the, um, the ransom demand. Back in the day when you saw the Colombian guerrilla groups doing extensive kidnapping, you know, they wanted equipment to fund their operations, particularly in kind of jungle environments. So you'd see things like chainsaws wellies, protective clothing, whatever it is. So again, the policy doesn't define ransom as just cash. It's cash and or kind of marketable goods. I'm not sure Hollywood make a movie about a ransom of wellies personally, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I've seen that doesn't that's... have quite the same cachet. No. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I, you've already hinted that the policy, the, the indemnity provided by the policy extends way beyond the ransom itself. So, uh, so I, I suppose you know uh, two questions combined. You've mentioned that there's a, a huge team of people, consultants and specialists, behind. But kind of, how big is that team? What sort of skills do they have? Are, are they are they people like Liam Neeson who have a particular set of skills that they can use? And and what other losses are covered by the policy? Presumably costs as well. All, yeah. all the costs are covered by the policy. Also, to your first question, I mean, there's a, there's a number of companies out there that provide this type of service. Typically, what you find in these organisations are people who have a background in law enforcement, in special forces, kind of military service, intelligence. But by no means is that the only kind of background. And I think perhaps what you're seeing is is a slight evolution in that type of background. I mean, if you go back twenty years, probably exclusively it would have been military. And now, you know, I, I've worked um, in my career with people who have been ex-investigative journalists, um, sociologists, um, people from other academic backgrounds. So I think the, um, the, the, the evolution or type of individual that does that role is definitely changing. In terms of the other things we cover cost-wise, um, I mean, there's a, there's a myriad. At, at, at a high level, obviously the ransom, if that ransom is lost in transit, so obviously if you're delivering for argument's sake, $2 million, and somebody nicks it or it's lost, we cover that reinstatement. And that has happened. I mean, we know that um, 
cash being delivered to Somali pirates over the years. I think there's one or two cases where the, the money sunk in the ocean, but the insurer would pay for effect of that reinstatement. We cover liability arising out of the, these events. So if an organization is held liable, for example, by an employee that's been through a, a grisly kidnapping scenario, and they believe the reason why they got into that is because their company had the meal prepared or overly exposed. We can cover things like business interruption, PR, crisis PR costs, legal costs, medical costs. There's, there's a, most policies contain about 40 line items of miscellaneous costs that are covered by this. And, and please just give you, kind of bring that to life. One of the most complicated cases I worked in on a personal basis was a, I think it was a, just over three years that an individual was held. Very complicated case. In kind of pure financial terms to the insurer, it, it cost about three, three and a half, four million pounds of loss. The actual ransom that was paid in that case was something like $4,000. So again, people get very fixated around the coverage for ransom. But actually, in that particular situation, all the other costs that added up around legal fees, uh, consultancy, the crisis consultancy, you know, flying the family around the world to make sure they were supported, et cetera, et cetera, over a long period of time added up to a significant amount. So yeah, again, they cover in many scenarios, these policies, and they behind those scenarios, there's a huge raft of expenses they'll pick up. You've been CEO of Samfire now since July 2021. And actually, kind of before I ask any questions about that, uh, the, why did you, why have you called it Samfire? Because the, as I understand it, that's a, uh, an, an edible seaside plant, which isn't an obvious name for an insurer, I wouldn't have thought. Yeah, probably a better name for a kind of catering business. Um, I don't know. It, <laughs> it's just a word I'd always loved from childhood, uh, kind of on the, like the beaches of the east of England where it grows. So you've got to call your business something. And that was just the name that popped into my head. And then I kind of reversed engineered some logic into it or rationale. And I, I love history and I, I, um, I, a little bit of research, apparently the word comes from San Pierre, St. Peter, because it grew on rocks and that's the kind of name it was given in the 15th century. And then I saw somebody describe it somewhere as hardy Northern European little bastard of a plant. And I thought, well, <laughs> it's got its link. It's rooted in history. I love the word. And if we're going to survive in a tough market, we're, we're, we're based in Northern Europe. We're probably going to have to be hardy little bastards to, um, excuse my, <laughs> my poor language. But uh, so that was the reverse engineer rationale to a word I just loved. And, uh, and on your website, which is kind of well worth the read, you have a number of interesting thought leadership articles on topics such as active shooters, uh, which we haven't discussed, uh, domestic terrorism, um, active assailant attacks, and all, all of those sort of things which we read about kind of on a fairly regular basis. And there's also a fascinating article on the impact of climate change on malicious risks. And you know, we're not going to discuss that because I know that you've already discussed that on the Political Risk podcast with David Benyon. So I recommend that to anyone, a fantastic episode. Um, but I do want to talk about your article on virtual kidnap um, because I found, as a concept, I found that fascinating. So could you explain what virtual kidnap is and kind of the extent to which it's actually insured? Perhaps the earliest examples we used to see were kind of teenagers going to the cinema in, in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, sort of advent of mobile phones. And... Um, Somebody in the foyer saying, listen, if you give your phone and details, you'd be entered to a prize draw or something like that. So they do that and go into the cinema, turn off their phone, having also given their home number as well. And then 
you know, the perpetrator would call the parents, say, listen, we've got your child. You won't contact them because we've got their phone. It's turned off. You need to pay $5,000 now to have them released. Now, maybe five times out of 10, two times out of 10, it might work. It's just a form of social engineering, fairly low risk. What you now see it evolving to is, is just a, a similar means of convincing somebody that you have got one of their loved ones. And at the unsophisticated end of the scale, we gather, or, you know, again, you can, you can look this kind of thing up on the internet, that kind of Mexican jails run these scams where you've got people on the phones day in, day out, calling numbers off lists they provided with, and then playing a recording in the background of somebody in evident distress saying, we've got your daughter. Now, it's probably at the hit rate of any cold call. You know, 999 people say, you know, I don't even have a daughter. What are you on about? But that one person may go, God, that does sound like my daughter screaming in the background. And I'm being told to wire $1,000 now. I'm not even thinking about that. I'm going to do it. And then they've been scammed. And there's many different iterations of that kind of scam. It's just a form of social engineering. It's covered by the policy because we cover alleged kidnap as well as kidnapping. There's little you can do in terms of crisis response to that. And how do you think the world of kidnap and ransom might change in the coming years? I mean, what's been clear from this conversation is that it has changed hugely over the last 20, 30, 40 years. So, I mean, what, what, what changes do you think you might see in the next decade or so? One of the things, and it's for good reason, that's held back the, perhaps the expansion of the market of this product is its confidentiality. Um, you know, the, the fact it had to, and it's a policy condition, remain highly confidential means that less people know about it. And there's good reason for that, because you don't want criminals knowing that such and such family or such and such organization is protected by K&R insurance, because perhaps the perception of their value goes up if they're looking at the assets of the insurance company or the assets of the individual. But I think increasingly, you know, as we've talked about, kidnappers and the payment of ransom probably makes up under a third of what these big crisis consultancies now do for their clients. So two thirds is more around extort crime, complex threats evacuations. And these are not such sort of confidential issues. So we're, we're seeing an increase in interest, people wanting to have the ability to access expert help and guidance and advice when something complicated, like an evacuation or, or a malicious threat comes their way. And actually the, you know, the driver for them is not the kidnap angle. So once you start going down that route, you're providing people with you know, as I described, the kind of connective tissue between somebody who's got a problem and uh, a provider that can provide help at that moment of need. If the insurer can sit in the middle and say, well, we'll connect you to that expert provider, we'll pay for all their expenses and we'll pay for the miscellaneous costs falling out of this. That then just becomes a kind of like a, like a critical instant crisis response product. It doesn't necessarily need to be confidential because perhaps you're not covering ransom, which is what drives confidentiality. And I think... That then becomes a tool by which corporates and families can just better risk manage themselves via an insurance policy. And without that kind of mystique caught up around it that perhaps K&R has, but I think that might start to drive more growth in this product because it's probably been quite a static market for probably 10 years. And finally, Charlie, if, if someone is listening to this podcast and is considering a career in insurance, kind of what would you say to them to persuade them that it's a good idea? One thing sticks in my mind, so I worked for Hiscox for 14 years. Robert Hiscox, obviously uh, um, a very inspiring chairman of that business for, for many years. And I remember him saying, 
the best thing about the insurance industry is that I could pick up a copy of the Times or some newspaper on any given day of the year. And somewhere in that newspaper, something would have happened that's either directly impacted the business you're working for, but certainly the market in which you operate in. So I think if you've got an interest in the world and geopolitics and economics and all these kind of things, insurance touches everything. That doesn't sound too pompous. <laughs> Thank you, Charlie. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you'll also love our other RPC podcasts, Taxing Matters, Money Covered and The Work Couch. Thank you once again for listening and I hope you have a great day.